Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Patrick Ness is an American-born writer now living in London. His latest book is Monsters of Men, the third in his young adult series, Chaos Walking. The first book in the Chaos Walking series, The Knife of Never Letting Go, was published in 2008 and was awarded the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize and the Book Trust Teenage Prize. It was also shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal in the UK. In 2009, he published the second book in the trilogy, The Ask and the Answer. He's also published two books for adults, The Crash of Hennington, and a collection of short stories called Topics About Which I Know Nothing. In between writing novels, he reviews books for various publications in England and has also taught creative writing at Oxford University. Thanks for joining us today, Patrick. Uh, Thank you for having me. Now tell us, when did you first realise you actually wanted to write as your profession? Was it something that happened from when you were very young or something that happened later in life? Um, well, I like to say, the thing I like to say when I talk to schools is that I think all good writers are good readers. Mm-hmm. And I think that I really realized that I wanted to be a writer um, when I was a reader, when I was, I, you know, I would read all the time when I was young, you know, seven, eight, nine, that kind of thing. And I would start reading books. And, at, you know, at a certain point, I would realize, I would start to think, you know, I'd do that differently if I'd written this book. Mm. And you, then you start to think, well, you know what, I might actually do it better. It would have been better if they'd done it my way kind of thing, you know, in, in all the hubris of a nine-year-old. <laughs> and I think I think that's where it really began, that uh, I I realized that I had different ideas than some of the books that I was reading, and that if I wanted to tell a story, I would, I would do it in a different way. And I think that's really where it started. So then at university, what did you study? Did you, did, and did you study that with the intention to become a writer already at that time? Well, I read English literature, mm-hmm. and at American universities, you get a lot of leeway. You get lots of time, and you can take your time to choose what sort of major you want. And I, could, I took enough classes to get either a creative writing degree or an English literature degree. And uh, I, you know, probably foolishly, well, not foolishly, but, you know, maybe slightly embarrassingly, looking back, I thought, that well, if I want to get a job, an English literature degree probably looks better than a creative writing degree, and that's that's probably not fair. But so I, t- I did a, a literature degree instead, even though I had all the credits for a creative writing degree as well. And then you went into corporate writing, I understand. Is that correct? I did. I worked for a cable operator, uh, like a cable company operating um, sort of local cable rather than a channel in uh, in L.A. And uh, I did their corporate writing for a number of years where I wrote all their speeches and their advertising and their form letters, that sort of thing. So were you writing on the side, your fiction work? I was. I mean, and I think, I mean, I think all first when the writers when they're writing their first novel do similar things. You know, you either get up early, which I would do sometimes. I get up an hour early, and spend an hour writing before going to work. Or, you know, sometimes I would never actually formally endorse this, of course. But uh, you know, sometimes at work you just don't get quite enough work to fill the day, so you turn your computer screen away from where everyone can see it. And uh, you know, I'd spend some time at work uh, when I'd finished all my work um, for the company. 
Um, and you know, you just you just find time. You, it's really a matter of really dedicating yourself and calling yourself a writer and saying, well, I I need to find time because this is my priority. Yeah, that's right. So then you started actually with uh, a novel for adults, uh, I did. and then you know, if if couple of books on you've moved on to a trilogy for young adults so mm. how did how did that work did you what what prompted that interest in ch- changing your demographic uh, well it was as surprising to me as to anyone else I mean I I'm a big believer that you can only write the story that's next in the queue in your head mm. whatever that story might be the one that's sort of nagging to be told and I just I'd had I'd, you know, I'd written the adult novel and I'd written the short story collection and I I just had an idea that sounded like fun, and it was um, it started out. Didn't it didn't start as, out as anything, any particular kind of novel. It just I wanted to write something in voice, and I had this voice that I was working on trying to get right, and the story kind of evolved, and and the concerns of the story made themselves clear, and I thought, well, these are these are the concerns of a young adult mm. about privacy and and information and and so on, and growing up. And I thought, oh, well, this is for young adults, I think. And that's about kind of where the end of my thinking on the, on the matter went. I didn't I didn't think it was a huge shift, um, really. I just thought, okay, well, instead of writing a novel that I'd want to read, I would write a novel that I would have wanted to read as a teenager, and that mm. was kind of my only criteria. So I, and I was I found it really liberating actually, because teenagers are well, they're not snobs. You know, they're not they'll follow you anyway. You have to respect them, mm. but they'll follow, but if you respect them, they're more willing to follow you to far off places. So I thought, well, great, I'll mm. see how far I can go. And so at the time when you wrote the first book in the trilogy, did you think it was the first book in a trilogy or and did you plan it that way? I did. I mean, I did. I did. I don't, um, I like, I, I mean, I like telling a story that you know has beginning, a middle and end. And I like, I, I don't like sort of trilogies that were out there. Welcome, if you know what I mean, with books four and five. Mm. And I just, I had an idea and I thought, well, writing a book is such a privilege you know, you, you, it's such a big deal to still get a book published that um, why I, I try to treat every time as if it might be the last. Mm. And if every, t- if every time might be the last, well, why not really go for it every time, if you see what I mean? So I thought, mm. well, if somebody's going to want to publish this, which they did, why not just shoot the moon? You know, why not really go for it? And I, I had big ideas and I had, I knew you know, the three stories of the trilogy that would make up one larger story. Mm. I knew the themes of each book, so I thought, well, why not just go for it? Why not just really, really go for it? Because um, who knows how many opportunities you'll have to do so. Mm. Now, the first book in the Chaos Walking series is The Knife of Never Letting Go, and mm-hmm. and it was very, very successful. Then your second book, The Ask and the Answer, and you've more recently released the third book, uh, Monsters yep. of Men. For those people who aren't fam- yet familiar with the trilogy, can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, well, they they start off with uh, Todd Hewitt, who, as the first book opens, is one month away from the birthday that officially makes him a man in the town where he lives, and there'll be a ceremony, and it's a legal category of being a man in this town. But the town isn't like other towns. There was a war just after Todd was born, uh, which killed half of the men and all of the women, so there are no women left, and so the town is dying, and Todd is the youngest boy in the whole town. He's the last one who'll ever be born. And the other thing that happened during the war is that a germ was released, um, which caused everybody to be able to hear what everyone else was thinking all the time, nonstop, whether you want to or not. And they called this the noise. And it's a real burden because it's it's a constant you know, onslaught of words and pictures and thoughts and feelings. And Todd really suffers under it. And the world is just a really, really noisy place all the time. Mm. 
And as the book goes, first book opens, he finds outside of town a spot of silence, which should be completely impossible, according to everything he's ever been told. And that turns out to be that spot of silence turns out to be a girl, which again also impossible. Mm-hmm. And so it, it turns out that he's been lied to about what's happened and what you know what's really at stake in this world, and he has to go on the run. And that kicks off the story, and it gets bigger and bigger from there, encompassing, uh, you know, terrorism and sides of the Civil War, and then all-out war in the third book. Um, so it just it gets bigger and bigger as it goes along. Mm. And how in the world did this <laughs> did the seed of that get planted? Well, I mean, the 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 world is already pretty noisy, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're a teenager. Mm-hmm. That there is so much information coming at you all the time from mobile phones, from texting, from the internet, from Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it just, it's hard to live privately anymore, particularly if you're young. Everything you do goes online. And if you make a mistake, it goes online. And if you tell somebody a secret, it goes online. And I thought, well, that's that's got to be hard to live with all this information coming at, at you. And then I thought, well, what would it be like if you, if the next logical step is that you couldn't get away, mm-hmm. that there was um, no escape, no switching off the computer, switching off your phone, not that anybody does that anyway. Mm. But uh, I thought, what if you couldn't get away? And what if you couldn't get away and you were young? And what would that, what cost would that be to having no privacy when you're a teenager? Mm. So it's, it's, everybody talks about dystopias, I mean, and I resist the word dystopia, but everyone talks about dystopias being about the future, but they're never, I don't think they're ever really about the future. I think they're about right now. Mm. So uh, to me, this book is kind of about right now. And so just take us back to when you were writing your first published book, uh, mm-hmm. which is a book of, book for adults, The Crash of Hennington. Yep. Um, yep. What were you doing at the time? And can you d- basically tell us the story of how you got it published? I was working at the cable company at the time. I mean, I wrote the first half of the book, and that mm-hmm. took about a year because, you know, it was my first try. I didn't know what I was doing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then the cable company in the dot-com boom of the late 90s got bought by a larger cable company. Um, for way too much money, and they gave us a really generous severance package because they didn't need two corporate writers, mm-hmm. for example. And so I took that money, and my partner's English. I thought, well, um, I can live off this money for a little bit if I stretch it out, and uh, we moved back to England. Mm-hmm. And I then spent, you know, on the year when I was here, um, which I live now, finishing the novel. Uh, trying to make it the best novel that I possibly could. And I think that's a mistake um, a lot of first-time writers make, which is that they only write part of a novel or only write a few chapters. And sure, that works for some people, but for 99% of us, you have to write the whole book and make it the best book possible. Mm. And then I just went through, there's a a book here called The Writers and Artists Yearbook, which lists every agent in the country. Mm -hmm. And I sent off my... Um, synopsis, my full synopsis, my sample chapters, and my one-page pitch letter mm-hmm. saying you know, what the book is about, who I was, and why they'd love it, <laughs> uh, to every every even remotely um, applicable agent. And a few of them asked to read the whole manuscript, and uh, a couple of them were interested. And I went in and I talked to one in particular, and she was terrific, and she took me on, uh-huh. and then she she got the book published. So it's really the old-fashioned way. You I didn't know it, anybody. You make it yeah. sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I mean, and of course, and of course, it isn't. But you know, but um, but I that I, that was my process. The process mm. um, is the old-fashioned process. I I just wrote the best book I could, mm. and then I found an agent through the old-fashioned process of seeking one out through the post. Mm. And then she took it to publishers, and one of them took it on. And uh, yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, there's a lot of luck involved, and mm-hmm. we did. I did rewrite the book, you know, with her, 
um, mm. to make it to make it better and to get good questions, to get good feedback. And um, yeah, so but, but it's my I think it's a hopeful thing because you know I didn't like I said I didn't know anybody yeah. in publishing and I didn't have a secret in anywhere. I just did it the old-fashioned way. And what do you do to make it the best book possible? Well, I I do a lot of rewriting. Um, I, nobody reads my first drafts, for example, nobody on earth, because mm-hmm. that way I have the freedom to make mistakes and to um, to get things wrong and to try out things that may not work, uh, but then to try out some things that do end up working. Uh, then I do a big rewrite for the second draft where I go back and I get rid of all the stuff that didn't work and all those ideas that I had five pages before the end, I go back and pretend I had them all along, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then at, at the second draft or sometimes the third draft stage, I get some trusted readers to read it, which are usually my agent, my editor, mm. and they then we talk about it for hours. And it's not they don't sit there and they say you need to do this, you need to do that. What is more helpful to me is uh, they ask me questions: mm. um, why this, why that, um, what you know, what happens here, what did you mean here, and that way I can I know what I want to get across, and the what the questions they ask me tell me where I haven't done that. Um, as well as I could, where I've been misunderstood. Um, and then I take all of that information and I write another draft and then a few more people read it. Um, all the while I'm working and working and weaving the story closer together. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a long, arduous process, mm. but a good one. And for me, I do view it like a weave, like it's tighter and tighter as the drafts go along. And how many drafts do you think you would do on average? Um, I do sort of four or five... Um, four or five things that I would call drafts. Mm-hmm. But within those drafts, I'm rewriting each page, each mm. chapter over and over again. So so probably, let's say four usually with a fifth as a final polish. Mm. Um, but within that, I'm doing a lot of lot of you know, detailed rewriting. And as a writer, are you one of those writers that needs to plot it all out first and, and so that you know what's going to happen and then you write? Or, or do you just see where it goes? Um, I do a combination of both. I mean, I this is a trick question because I don't I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that anyone, anyone's process is wrong. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you if you write a book and you get to the end, you've done it right. <laughs> uh, and it's it's finishing that it's actually finishing is the is the hard part. Finishing a novel is the thing that most people don't do, and the thing that writers do do is they finish. Um, but I like to know the last line. Mm-hmm. I call it the exit feeling. It's not the climax, usually. It's just how I want to leave the reader. You know, I knew the last line of all three books before I started writing book one, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I like to know a general voice, how it's going to sound. I usually set out a rhythm for how the chapters are going to work. You know, I, I usually know how I'm going to divide up the book, if it's going to be in parts, if it's going to be chapters, how long the chapters are going to be, because it just gives me a bit of discipline. Mm-hmm. But mainly, I know three or four big scenes that are important to the book, right. emotional, emotionally important, mm. that I can't wait to, to get to, mm. um, which isn't really a structure. It's just big scenes that I know are going to happen, and mm. then the rest I leave open. So I have something to write towards, but it gives me enough freedom along the way to make discoveries and to find surprises and things. And do those big scenes always make the final cut? Usually, because usually they're the ones that tell me I've got a book. Mm-hmm. They're usually the scenes that um, feel like what the book's about. Mm. Um, you know, in The Knife of Never Letting Go, it was the um, the death of a certain character. 
bad when he gets away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a very, very sad scene. That, and, uh, you know, and I knew that it was going to be a sad scene and a powerful scene. And then when I finally got to it, it was very powerful to mm-hmm. write and very upsetting to write. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was working because of that. And so people, people write to me about that scene all the time, mm-hmm. about uh, how it made them cry and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that, that means it's working. So, so it's usually when it's something that strong um, or something that it, that I'm that excited to write about them. Uh, um, yeah, they usually stay in. I don't. I, I, if if they aren't that, if they aren't pulling me along that strong, then they don't belong in the book. What is the rewarding part for you of being a a writer? Ooh, it's. Um, I don't know. I mean, I writers are. I think we're control freaks by nature, <laughs> you know, because the writing is the one art form where you can, and maybe sculpture and maybe music composition where you have entire control over it. Mm. You know, where you are, you are in charge and there's just no, you can get some input, but you're the final decision maker and so on. And which is something you don't get in screenwriting, for example. Mm. Um, and so I, it's just, you know, I, I, I'm compelled to tell the story and I, you know, and I enjoy telling stories. And then when you write it all out, uh, and then at the very end of the process, you hold the book in your hand that someone's published. I mean, that's that's really the, the big day for me. Mm. Not when not when other people read it, not when it's in the stores. For me, it's when the first issue comes off the press and I can hold it in my hand. That's the day. Mm. It feels like, you know, wow, this is it. <laughs> you mentioned on your website that you write a thousand words a day, come hell or high water. Is is that true? Do you, and, and do you have some kind of writing routine or process that you follow each day? Uh, well, that's what I'm doing first drafts. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, I mean, because a thousand words isn't all that much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's neither is it insignificant, mm-hmm. but it's something that I can do. And sometimes it takes an hour. You know, sometimes it takes a couple hours. You know, and sometimes it's a real pain. Mm-hmm. But um, that's okay. I, whatever it is, it's moving the story forward somehow. Mm-hmm. So I write my thousand words. Then the next day, I will go back to the beginning of that thousand words and I'll rewrite it. And then I'll add a thousand words on to the end so that the story is constantly moving right. and uh, churning in my head until I get uh, a chapter or a section or something. Mm. Um, and then I just start over with a thousand words and then I go back and rewrite it and add a thousand words on the end. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how writing books is a long, 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 long process. And I think uh, in order to do it without feeling like you're never going to finish yeah. uh, something, doing something like that is necessary. Because I know that even though it's a thousand words a day, I know that at the end of a hundred days of writing, I'll have a hundred thousand words, ideally. You mm. know, and uh, there you go. That's a long first draft that you can work with. Mm. And do you ever not get to the thousand words? Um, no. If I sit down to write the thousand words, I will get the thousand words. Mm. Um, there are days when I don't write, uh, where the, the the day slips away from me, or I panic, or I just <laughs> stay in bed and put, put the duvet over my head, <laughs> and which a lot of writers do. Uh, but no, if I sit down to write, I'm going to get them. But but there are days that I miss mm. and punish myself for. So. so when you moved to England and you worked on the second half of your first book, was that mm-hmm. when you basically became a full-time writer or full-time author? Uh, that yeah, but that was by accident because I, mm. you know, I was living off a severance package and I didn't have permission to work in the UK yet. Uh. So, right. <laughs> so you know, so my my um, money ran out just about the time I got permission to work, and I had finished my draft, and um, I found my agent just as I got permission to work. So I started doing temp work. Right, right. <laughs> you know, just while looking for a job, mm-hmm. and uh, then while I was doing temp work, my agent uh, got me a book deal, mm. um, which was uh, you know it wasn't a huge book deal, but it was enough for a while. Mm. 
And yeah, so that so I quit temping and uh, started writing full time. And you know, and and until you know, until um, until things got a bit better, you know, it's several years of you know of living on not very much. I also did other writing work. I right. I read scripts for production companies and wrote coverage. I wrote for the radio. I wrote. I did work on a film script and a radio play. I wrote. Mm. You know, I did lots of lots of of writing work mm. um, until the kids' books came out and have been a. Um, uh, a nice surprising hit. Mm. So I, I, now I just do those, and I review for The Guardian here in the UK. Yes. So tell me about you. You do book reviews. What's it like reviewing another person's work when you yourself you're an author and you're you're going to get reviewed as well? Do you, is yeah. it hard? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's. I mean, I never thought of it as hard. Um, but right. I, I mean, until people started telling me how hard it was. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've reviewed for several years, and I, you know, and on the whole, I write. Um, on the whole, I really want to I want to champion books. I really want to find books that people um, want to read. You know, mm. I want to get people reading, and uh, you know, so I get a, I get debut novels a lot, and I, you know, and I want, to, and I, and I know how what it's like to write a book, so I can see what the writer's doing, and you know, I give a lot of benefit of the doubt if maybe it hasn't worked out mm. so well. Um, but of course, the ones that you get remembered for are the negative ones. You know, I've written, I've written, I don't know, 200 reviews. You know, 190 of which were, you know, either positive or mixed or had, you know, uh, you know real constructive. And I've written maybe 10 really bad ones, mm. and those are the ones that people remember. But the only, the only time, and I say this, and it's true, the only time I write a really, really bad review of someone is if I think they've been lazy. Right. Because that really makes me cross. Because, like I said before. Writing a book is a privilege, mm. and an audience is not a given. And so to take them for granted, I think, shows contempt for your reader. Mm. And that really makes me angry. And so I have written, I have written really negative reviews of authors, I think, who have been lazy. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's caused me a bit of grief. Um, um, but, you know, whatever. I mean, if you... Mm. If, if you if, if, I need to be truthful, I suppose. Sure. And, um, yeah, and, and book reviewing... You know, everyone accuses it of being false and just backslapping. And if you, you know, if you, if that needs to not be true, which it does, then sometimes you have to risk annoying people. Mm. I understand oh, well. you've also taught creative writing at Oxford University. Is that right? I did. I did. I did that for about three years. Yeah. What did you enjoy? Did you enjoy it? And if so, what did you enjoy about it? Um, well, I don't. I did. I didn't enjoy the. Uh, administration of a, of a university that's mm. never fun and I think anybody who's ever worked at a university would agree with me but um, being in front of students is great mm. and you know and, and just I, I don't think creative writing can be taught I think it can be practiced mm. and I think the thing that most new writers struggle with the most is the um, needing permission to try things Right. You know, you'd be really surprised at how many creative writing students won't try something like vernacular, for example, because mm. they think, "Well, it's been done," mm. you know, and that, that's not really the point. Everything's been done. Mm. It's not, you know, I always tell them it's not it's not the song that people pay for; it's the singer. It's how you sing it, mm. you know. So it's not. Ever, people have done vernacular for centuries. That's not the issue. It's how you do it personally. So for me, it's a process of getting them to try things and, and giving them permission to do things and uh, opening up the possibilities and making the palette bigger. Um, so that's really satisfying because, you know, really fun things can come out of that. In fact, I'm next week I'm doing a, a teaching week, a five-day course um, at the Arvon Foundation, which is a writing foundation in the UK, and we're, we're just going to do that. I'm going to make them try new 
uh, new things that they might be too scared to do otherwise. So that's fun. That's really fun. And <clears throat> what are you working on now? Are you writing a book now? I am. I My publishers brought me an interesting proposition mm-hmm. um, at, when I finished uh, the Chaos Walking books, which are, which are very big, very involved, very detailed books. Mm-hmm. And they brought me something different, which is there was um, a writer... An, um, an English writer, an English-Irish writer called Siobhan Dowd, mm-hmm. who won the Carnegie Medal last year. She actually beat Knife of Never Letting Go. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, she won it posthumously because she had died of breast cancer. Mm. And my publishers brought me her very, very last project, mm. pr- project which was uh, just a premise, basically, and a couple thousand words, um, very, very early words. And they said, would you consider turning this into uh, a book? Mm. And it's a shorter book. Um, it's going to be illustrated, um, and I, I thought about it and thought about it because that's not something I'd normally do because I don't want to. I, I don't think you can mimic some another writer. I think that would do a disservice to mm. me and to her, mm. um, and for, particularly her work. And so, but I thought about it, and ideas started springing up and ways that I could tell it. And I thought this is interesting, mm. kind of really different thing than what's come before. So. That's what I'm working on now. That is different. Uh, so is that for young yeah, adults we, we, or children? It, or? it is for it is for young adults. Mm-hmm. So it's probably nine, ten plus. But I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to make it for everybody, which is just, um, you know, what what would interest me as a reader. Mm. You know, and, and it's short, and it's um, I don't I wouldn't give anything away about it, but it's you know, it's it's a it feels really it feels like a really nice challenge, and really, you know, the juices are flowing. Mm. And then after that, I've got um, sort of big mischievous evil ideas for. Or more big books for young adults because it's I do, it's just been terrific fun and really liberating and really enjoyable. So mm. I thought, well, why not? You, know. you you mentioned that they're such big books, and obviously, as you've as you've mentioned, also it's it's a it's a long and it's a slow process to write a book. Yeah. By the time you get to the end, and and you've and and it's done, you know, do you feel? What do you feel? Do you feel relief? Do you feel? loss that you've got nothing to do that day do you feel uh, what do you feel oh no there's always something to do <laughs> uh, um loss not really relief yes and just happy because i mean i've been looking forward to the end mm. you know for three years i mean i knew what the ending i knew what the ending was going to be mm. and i and i was really happy with what the ending was going to be and i couldn't wait to get to it right. and it's it's kind of like sending your kids off to college you know you've done all the work you can, you've done, you know, you've done the best that you can do, and now it's time to send them out into the world. And it's, it's, I mean, I, I'm not really sad, just satisfied and, um, and pleased and proud and hopeful, mm. um, but um, not lost, not really. Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's ready for it to finish. Right, that's a great analogy. Sending your kids off to college. Um, yeah. And finally, for the pe- for people who are listening, uh, what are your tips for for them to? Um, improve their writing to make the best book that they can and ultimately get published well the the it's a, it sounds like a simple thing um but you'd be surprised how many people don't do it which mm. is if you want to write a successful book one that will get published and one that people want to read you have to write a book that you would want to read yourself mm. and you'd be really really surprised at how many people don't do that mm. they think well, if I need, want to get a book published, I have to fulfill a formula or I have to adhere to the strictures of a genre or I have to write something that the market wants or something that has been successful already so I can sell it. Mm. That's not true. It just isn't true. Mm. I mean, when Harry Potter came out, suddenly everybody was writing wizarding books. <laughs> well, nobody was looking for the first Harry Potter. Mm. Nobody was looking for it. Nobody wanted a book about wizards, but she sat in a coffee shop and wrote this book that just thrilled her. 
Mm. You know, that just excited her. And I think when you do that, I think when you write to please yourself, ignoring all of the outside, quote-unquote, needs for publishing, if you ignore all that, however weird or specific or particular your story is, Mm. if you love it, your joy is going to be in it. And I think that joy is the intangible thing. Mm. You know, it's it's the thing that a reader will maybe not know that they recognize, but they'll know that something's there. And they'll think, ooh, ooh, I want to follow this story wherever it goes, however strange it is. So I think that's my big advice. Ignore all the things that you're telling yourself that, oh, well, people won't like this because I do, but I'm weird. My tastes are weird, so why would people want to read what I want to read? Well, they'll want to read it because you love it. Mm. That's that's my big advice. Write Write a book that you want to read. Wonderful. And on that point, thank you very much for your time today, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.